That's fundamentally why I think communities are so important and knowing how to strengthen communities is really important. Learning happens in calm, trusting environments. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how human minds create value from information and author of the book Thriving on Overload. Every week, I speak to incredible people who share how they use unlimited information to create massive value and keep ahead of accelerating change. If you want to learn more about this valuable topic, go to thrivingonoverload.com, which includes podcast episodes and transcripts, excerpts from the book, articles, You can sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to help you improve your habits. And there are also details on the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which guides you through the journey of amplifying your information productivity. That's thrivingonoverload.com. Building on my work on Thriving on Overload, I'm also focusing on the theme of humans plus AI to help massively augment your productivity using artificial intelligence. If you want access to a raft of resources, frameworks, guides, and tutorials, just go to humans plus technology. If you find this episode useful, please do take just 10 seconds to hop into iTunes or whatever app you're using to listen to this to give the podcast a rating or a quick review. These are all free resources that would be massively helpful to me to make this project feasible and also help others to make this easier to find. On this episode, we learn from Rachel Hoppy. Rachel is the founder of professional services firm Engaged Organizations. She co-founded the Community Roundtable in 2009 and produced the State of Community Management Report for over a decade. Her work has appeared in a wide variety of publications, including Harvard Business Review. You can find more on her work at engagedorgs.com. In this episode, Rachel shares insights on metacognition, communities of practice, personal knowledge networks, intrinsic learning, and far more. Keep listening to learn from Rachel's great insights. Rachel, it's a delight to have you on the show. Hi, Ross. It's great to talk to you. It's been a while. It has been too long. So you talk about metacognition, actually a word which I love as well. And I'd love to hear what does that mean and how do you do it? (laughs) Those are two really different things. But what it is, is being aware of how you think and how it's different from the way other people think. So how do you how do you apply that? <laughs> well, a lot of people don't have a lot of metacognition. They they really feel like the way they think about things is the way everybody thinks about things because they're in their own head. Um, uh, so getting metacognition is a little harder than just knowing what it is because that means you you can instinctively understand that you, when you use a word, the person that's listening to you may not have the same experience of that word or be coming from a different context or different power position or different anything. They might be coming from a different event that totally stressed them out as you're having a call conversation, right? There's so many things that can change how they're thinking in the moment and overall. I think the way I developed metacognition was both that my my dad was a very intellectual minister. So he he didn't talk about metacognition, but it was constantly a conversation growing up. And I wouldn't have known the word necessarily 
But again, uh, lots of diversity, lots of conversation about that growing up. But then uh, when I was in high school, I did an exchange year in Germany, uh, my junior year. So when I was 16, I was in Germany with a host family all year. And uh, that experience is one of the best, like being in another culture and really understanding another culture is one of the best ways to understand that people just don't, like they just don't think about things the same way. And if you look at the language, uh, I used to laugh because I was like, Germans have like 20 ways to say you're an idiot. The French have 20 ways to say I love you. The Danish have 20 words for st- snow, right? Like that tells you something about their culture. So like you, you get that sensibility that like, and, and so then when you come back, like when I came back to the U.S., the U.S. is enormous and other people in other countries do not understand. Like the Europeans are like, oh, you're all American. And you're like, so my friends used to wear cowboy boots and, um, uh, raincoats, like, like the, the Burberry type raincoat. And I'd be like, that's New York and Texas. Like, what are you doing? And they're like, we're American. And I'm like, nobody in America wears those two things together. That doesn't happen. So that's a example. You come back and you realize you're all speaking English, but you're not talking about the same thing. There's yes. all these different cultures here. And so we think we're talking to each other and understand each other. But often we really don't. And the only way to interrogate that is to have a conversation with somebody. So in the first instance, understanding that people think differently. And so that informs your communication. How it is you take in what they are saying, how it is you phrase or rephrase or adapt what you're saying or how you're communicating to be able to reach a common point. Mm-hmm. So in terms of, I suppose, pulling this to the, the information, so I've got a lot of information and part of that is we've got written, we've got videos, and I think a lot of very, very important part of it is in conversation. So in terms of how it is we take in information better from the world, make sense of the world better, how does metacognition uh, help us? I think it makes us more open to how someone got to the position they're in. And so one of the things when I'm talking to somebody, or actually it's a game I play with myself too. When I hear something I don't like, I'm like, how how is that the right conclusion for the person who's making it? Like, how did that happen? (laughs) That they reached this conclusion and I reached a very different one, right? And so, that allows you to have a better conversation because you're suspending the, well, I would never make that decision because it's idiotic, right? To um, what's going on in their world that's driving them to see the situation that way. So it makes you curious. Yeah, well, for me, one one of the implications of that is what I call richer, richer mental models. How do we have more richness to our models of the world and how mm-hmm. it works and how we can informs our decisions? And rather than having that, you know, singular, 
that we can make it richer by having more facets to that, which includes being able to, uh, you know, I suppose, basically see how other people look at things and in which yeah. there might be some validity, just possibly. Well, so the layer on top of that that's interesting, and I studied politics way back, so I think of everything in terms of power, is people in positions of power and privilege are the least likely to have metacognition because they don't have to live by anybody else's rules. And so they're a bit naive, right? Like if you've always gotten to walk through the world saying declarative sentences and have that taken as fact, why would you believe anyone thinks differently? There's, you know, other than in arguing, which you know, as in other people think differently, but, you know, they're wrong and you're right. And, you know, I think yeah. that there's, there are a very tiny minority of, as you say, the, you know, those in positions of power who do have that ability. You know, that's the Gregory Bateson's yes. multiple perspectives that brings wisdom. And, you know, it's, there are, there are some people in positions of power that have that and hopefully a few more than they used to have in the Lucinda past. Arden certainly had that. Um, she was very compassionate. But, you know, I think we can, wherever, whoever we are, we can all learn about, I suppose, that we can be wiser by being able to appreciate the, those multiple perspectives. Well, so it's not even wiser to me. It's not, it's not necessarily, I mean, it is about learning. You learn things. But it's about respecting the other person's process, right? And if the other, when you're talking to somebody, if you don't respect where they came from, their process, how they got to where they are, you're not going to have a good conversation. And so being open about that and kind of knowing your ignorance of that when you first meet somebody is really helpful because you don't, layer expectations on them and you don't immediately get to an argument the in my conversations and interviews for the book uh thriving on overload it you know, really came out how much knowledge creation is in conversation and, and i'm in fact just just right now i'm sort of just really i've just had some conversations recently and you know that's where i have feel that i have learned the most. And part of it is, you know, it's, it's listening to what I say as well as what the other person says. But mm -hmm. it's, if it wasn't for the conversation, that wouldn't come out. Well, it's, it's because you, you're meeting each other where you are, right? You ask a question, that's where you are. I can answer that question to where you are right now. And you ask me a question that's never been asked of me before. And sometimes I think out loud and I'm like, yeah, I think that's right. But I've never articulated it because nobody's ever asked before. So like, that's kind of that mechanic. Yeah. And, and bouncing off each other's ideas as in, oh, that's an interesting idea. But in fact, mm -hmm. that actually brings out my own idea. But, but this idea mm -hmm. of conversation or knowledge creation is almost more in conversation than anything else brings us to a community. 
And you know, your mm-hmm. whole career has been based on. Uh... Oh, I had a whole career before community. Oh, right. I was in innovation management right. and product management. So. Well, well, <laughs> but yes. But the fact that you got, I think that's that's telling that you moved from innovation in management to mm, community yes. because I would suggest that community is in fact where the most innovation happens. They are the engines of innovation, actually. So love to hear. You know, I suppose, you know, just any high level reflections around community as a engine for knowledge creation or innovation and what it is that, mm-hmm. you know, how we can engage or how we should be thinking about community or communities to, uh, to get better at creating our knowledge. So I'll link it to metacognition, which is if you... Uh, live and remain in one community, it's very unlikely you're going to have metacognition because they are going to create your truth. Whether it's true or not, they're going to create your reality. The way that collective community thinks uh, really shapes your thinking and your behavior. And I I kind of think about it as... uh, the, the health of your community is your floor and ceiling to potential, right? If they can't imagine something better than exists in your community today, that's what you're going to aspire to. If their floor is very low, you're not going to see anything wrong with kind of like going down that. Well, I mean, you may see something wrong, but like it won't be out of completely out of bounds to kind of, so anyway, so that's fundamentally why I think uh, communities are so important and knowing how to strengthen communities is really important because learning happens in calm, trusting environments. And, uh, and this is something people get wrong all the time because they, the interface can look very similar to social media and the emotional reality is completely different. So social media is triggering, it's anxiety provoking, that's what everybody's geared toward. In communities, things are calm and you are calmer because you know people trust you. You're not ready to be attacked or attack somebody, right? Like you're comfortable there. You've got a degree of safety. So you can, like, this is a good community. In a bad community, that's not the case. But assuming it's a strong community, you're calm. And being in community, in that community, with that community, um, calms you down. And you can't learn if you're anxious. It just doesn't, your brain doesn't doesn't work. You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com course to find out more. Now back to the show. So, so what one uh, 
one uh, aspect of this is communities of practice, uh, which you know we both know of since uh, at least the 90s. And you know, we're essentially those who practice, have expertise in a particular domain together, uh, share and learn. And I think there's a couple of aspects for this. One is that we can join communities of practice, be they inside organizations or outside, or, or we can even form our own as in saying, well, mm-hmm. we'll try, try to catalyze our own. And so just love to hear about this idea of saying, okay, if those who have a area of expertise, uh, how it is that they might nurture or get into communities of practice to help them. So I'll, I, I've been working with a very large organization for the last two years, building a, a digitally enabled community of practice network for exactly those reasons to uh, spread and uh, norm what the organization knows across its employee base um, uh, and integrate communities into the flow of work. So the only way you can do that is digitally. Like you can't come to a conference room every time you have a question because you may not even be in the same country, right? Like (laughs) that just logistically doesn't happen. Um, So they have to be digitally enabled. I think these I think digital communities of practice are the biggest opportunity companies have that they have no idea they have. Um, because people are used to email. Now they have chat tools, so team chat. The team chat interface may look very similar to a community interface. And so they're like, what's the difference? I don't know. It's all chat. Um, But communities of practice allow um, conversation around a discipline area. The other thing that it does, and this uh, uh, this is often bumpy, is... In a lot of uh, companies run by innovation or technology or expertise, uh, the subject matter experts are almost seen as gods. They're the last word on things. So think of surgeons, think of PhDs, think of your architect, your software engineering architects, right? They're the ones that are like the final word. However, the person that's been at the organization doing work for a couple of years is going to learn very little about how to do their work from those people. Not because they don't have anything to teach. Obviously, they do. But they have forgotten what it's like to be two years into the discipline. And so they tend to answer questions much more esoterically than that person can handle. I I run into this problem. Like I answer questions and people are like, no, 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 I just wanted to know how to set up a discussion or whatever it is, right? Like I just need the practical thing. Um, The best person to teach someone is the person right ahead of them on the path. Yeah. And they're very good at teaching the person right behind them. So everyone has something to learn and something to teach. But that's not how 
culturally we view knowledge. It's very stratified. Communities are almost like matching engines for expertise and learning because someone can ask a question. And so again, using the scenario of a younger person early on their path, ask a question, the subject matter expert isn't even going to spend any time there. It's not an interesting question for them. They're going to sail on by. The person who's going to answer it is someone who's like, I remember, like, I remember being frustrated by that and how I got over that. Yes. And they'll answer. And so you'll get the perfect pairing, uh, but it'll be emergent, not planned. Yes. And that's a hard dynamic for organizations to get used to as well. Yeah. Well, I, I, you know, for a long time, I've sort of, you know, I think of it as peer learning where you know, you learn with your peers rather than from the experts. And so this is very much the case for the experts, as in all of the Uber experts, those who are on the leading edge all want to learn with and from each other's, and those are their peers, and there are people who are earlier in the journey, and they should be learning from each other because they're learning how to, you know, they're able to show how they're learning is what they're learning. And the other aspect of learning and we did it in really big chunks in the past because of limitation, physical limitations. We have to go to a school or to a room or to a whatever. Um, people learn much better incrementally in the moment they have the need. Yes. And they learn much better when they've asked for the information rather than being told you need to learn this. Okay. It's not what I'm thinking about, but okay, <laughs> right? So it, it really accelerates the ability to learn. And in communities, they should be transparent to the rest of the organization. So if you ask enterprise search or you ask somewhere, you ask the AI machine, <laughs> you will find that expertise. And so you're not you're not having the organization relearn and relearn and relearn the same things. And so innovation compounds a lot faster. In the in the book, I talk about personal information networks, and perhaps they should I should have called them personal knowledge networks, because it is, you know, not so much, you know, well, this has happened, and that's part of what a network is good for to tell you, oh, did you hear about this? But uh, yep. perhaps more of it is to learn together and we can uh, share it. So well, if, for you, if you're an individual, not sitting in an organization or you're sitting in an organization that doesn't do it. So how, how would you go about building your own personal knowledge network that would support your uh, growth and So knowledge? before I answer that, I do want to differentiate between a personal knowledge network and a community. Because one... They're both valuable, but they're different. One is a hub and spoke, and one is a like a really mixed uh, scenario where you build truth, you build collective trust, collective truth, right? It's more scalable in that way, like everybody's moving along the path together, which doesn't mean new people don't come in and out, but it's it's not centralized in quite the same way. For me... I've been on social technologies for a long, long time. Um, and I'm curious. So 
you know, uh, it, it's kind of a natural fit. Um, and I'm curious about a lot of things. So I think if somebody followed me on certain networks, they'd be like, what is she talking about? Like, I am here for the community news. That's part of who I am, but I have a lot of interest. And so I'm a little, um, I find innovation is at the overlap of different areas. And, and the overlap in the Venn diagram is where Spark happens. So you need a diverse network. Yes. So I follow people who I think are interesting. And I don't follow people or accounts that just share transactionally. So I don't follow media accounts. I, I have lists that have media accounts. If I want to know what's going on in the news, they're, they're where I go. But that's not what I'm in a personal knowledge network to do, to just read. I do read plenty. Um, and and the recommendation and sharing from my network helps point me to things that I find interesting and relevant. But I'm there for conversation as much as I am for just reading content um, and hearing about things and building relationships. And uh, if you were on Twitter in the early days, that's probably your experience. If you came on in the last five years, that's absolutely not your experience. And so. Um, it's that that's essentially, I let my, I let my curiosity lead and I don't, and I, oh, the other thing that I do is I unfollow people. So if I'm seeing a bunch of stuff in my feed, it could be my best friend. I don't care. Like that's not, well, on some networks, I will stay connected to my best friends. Um, if I'm there to learn, like my Twitter network, and I'm not finding value in somebody's stuff, I'll unfollow them because it's it's just filling my screen with noise um, that's not interesting. So it's constantly weeding it, right? Like adding people uh, that are sharing interesting things or uh, be one somebody in my network is talking with and weeding out like what's no longer relevant or interesting to me. So, so actually I think that does potentially lead us to uh, another topic, which is uh, ADHD. And uh, mm -hmm. in our previous conversations, you said you've discovered you had that. And, you know, as I've had with other guests, I'd love to, for you to share what you have learned, which you think might be useful to other people. Um, so a couple things about ADHD is that boredom is stressful. So if I'm bored, I'm stressed, which um, people I don't think get, I didn't get that boredom could be stressful until I read it and I was like, oh yeah. It's like, it's not uh, thought of that way. So I didn't think of it that way, but it like not digging into things causes me stress. Doing things repetitively, that's not my strong suit. I love complex problems. I love synthesis. I'm voracious. Um, 
and I have strong interests and I can't pay attention to things I'm not interested in. So like, I've got to be in, engaged in a topic. And when I'm engaged, I'm very engaged. But it's, it's a little bimodal. <laughs> like I'm either bored or I'm engaged. And in the middle, it's, it, it can be harder or take more energy to follow along. Yes. It's not that I don't ever, but it, it takes a little more energy to like do accounting, for example. I still do accounting, but it takes a little more energy to like just buckle down. Um, so uh, a lot of people get very annoyed. I come up with, I, I'm like a constant idea generator. It drives, it's driven my teams in the past crazy. And I know it's not actually helpful to them, right? Because they're trying to get work done. And I'm like, what about this? What about that? They're like, no, 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 no. I haven't finished the first thing. Um, and so I use my social networks a lot to just play with ideas because my mind is constantly chewing on things. And that's an outlet so that I'm not bothering people who don't want to be bothered. Like it's opt-in. If people don't like, like the volume of things that I share or the range of things that I share, they don't have to follow me. So that's, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is the things I'm really good at like synthesis, uh, the more the the more I see and the broader I pull from, the easier it is for me to see patterns. And the easier it is, I I've gotten to the point where I kind of have spidey sense about like seeing something new that doesn't fit a pattern. I'm like, hmm. And my, the analyst in me goes, that's interesting. I'll bookmark that, right? Like, and if it happens again, that might be a trend and I should kind of go investigate a little bit. So I have a very intuitive way of uh, absorbing and like, it's almost like the back of my mind is working and all of a sudden like things come together in jail and I'm like, ah, now I know what's going on. Yeah, well that's the thing, a really, really apt description of, you know, synthesis again as I describe in the book. But to your point around boredom being uh stressful, I think the the and you've you've put it admirably, is is fantastically, is the uh, the antidote to the boredom is not superficial, it's going deep. And I think that a real of the real problem is there are people who get bored and then they're just skimming, 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 skimming. Whereas the real antidote to the boredom is, you know, all right, here's something I can just dive into. And it has to be something, as you say, that you're passionate about. It's interesting because I'm not at the community roundtable any longer because I, I had a big hairy problem when I started. Well, it was a hypothesis. And I was looking at it and saying, given technology, given organizations, I was a management consultant for a while and now the and the power dynamics management is going like this is going to disrupt organizational structures entirely and nobody knows how to manage in this way um and I think these community managers 
online uh, who don't have any structural control over the people in their community, but are accomplishing big things, have the answer to that management dilemma or that it's really a leadership dilemma. I mean, depends where you parse out management and leadership. Um, and my, I mentioned my dad was a minister. He was a minister in a church that could hire and fire its ministers. So he had a very community-centric leadership style. He couldn't piss people off, right? Like, and he couldn't tell people what to do. So he had to lead rather than kind of manage in an old school kind of way. Anyway, so I did over a decade of annual research so that I could, and it was qualitative initially, and then I got quantitative, and then I was able to benchmark it. And so I got that done, and uh, I spent a few more years there, and I just started getting really bored. And I was like, I am done with this big, hairy problem. I've satisfied the hypothesis that I started this organization for. And I'm at this juncture of like, what's the next big problem I solve? And I haven't quite figured that out yet. I've, I've, I've just been through almost exactly the same process of finding what it is I must dive into. So just to, to round out, um, what are three things from your experience that you would suggest to people to help them thrive in a world of massive information overload? Just three things. Okay. Um, All right. Well, it doesn't need to be three. That's... Um, well, so I would say um, in a world of details, start with a hypothesis or intent. If you work up from the details, you'll, you'll never get anywhere, right? And hypothesis and intent can be purpose, right? What's the purpose of your interrogations, right? Like, what are you driving at? Figure out what that is. And that's, that's not easy. Um, so that's one. Um, two, uh, I really think um, you can't worry too much about making every second count. Um, you've got to be willing to explore because uh, the new stuff is in stuff you can't process yet, right? And yes. and it's the trade-off between uh, like extrinsic getting something done and intrinsic learning something. And everybody has a different level of trade-off. But if you're trying to grow and learn, you need to spend, you need to put some time aside and just explore without, without too much direction. Um, and uh, the third thing is that um, paying attention to feelings and building relationships. Um, and I, talk about feelings a lot because if you ask people about how they feel about something, it really helps and, and you're in conflict with them. You see something differently than they do. Asking how they feel about something will 
more quickly get you to the root cause than just ping-ponging back and forth or listing like the 10 reasons why I believe this. Like say, how do you, what do you feel is the right thing to do? Why do you feel that way? Like, why are you frustrated? What is it about that that makes you frustrated? And if both parties do that, you can narrow in on the nugget and stop arguing about the big thing, which is much harder to solve. And uh, that goes hand in hand with building relationships. So really being attuned to somebody else, being uh, generous with other people, being generous with your time. People are always like, oh, I'm taking up your time. And I'm like, you're, I don't know what's going to happen. And if like this really falls flat, like I probably won't talk to you again, but I'm open to seeing where it takes us, right? And because of that, I have a huge network of people that I have very trusting relationships with. And I learn mm, things. Yes. They tell me things that they would not tell me otherwise, which is also a way to learn. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's, that's fantastic. I think you know, I think there's you know very strongly aligned around the sort of themes of how I go about the you know the thriving and the synthesis and the sort of the the value and the interaction. So thank you so much for your time and your insights, Rachel. It's been a real delight. Thank you for having me. It was uh, fun to to chat with you, and I think I learned something. In the conversation. (laughs) Yes. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com, where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review, and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.